And Spurgeon would always argue this. He would say, I think that sometimes we spend too much time on apologetics and trying to do that stuff. If we just exposit the scriptures, the scriptures will speak for themselves. And he would say it like this. How do you defend a lion? You just open the door and you let him out. I like that. Let's pray this morning. Father, we just lift up Bernie and Anne-Marie's son to you right now. Jesus, we ask that you would touch him. Lord, and first of all, first and foremost, God, we ask for his salvation, Lord, that he would settle accounts with you right now this morning, Jesus. I pray that, that he'd make it right with you. And so, God, I, I pray that you would be with Ernie and Anne-Marie. I pray, God, that you give them great wisdom. I pray that their, their words, Lord, would just be the words of your spirit to him and that he would respond to you. And, God, we ask you to preserve him in Jesus' name. We pray, God, that that, that bleeding would stop. We pray, God, that uh, the doctors would be able to get a handle on what's going on. And I, I ask God that you would just uh, comfort Ernie and Anne-Marie this morning. I pray that your presence would be very thick with them and, and with their son and that you would just reveal your grace and your glory and your goodness in the midst of this situation. Lord, as we come to your word today, it's your word. It's your word, Lord. And we pray that you'd let the lion out of the cage in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 3. We've been, uh, started this series right at Christmas and um, it worked out perfect. We were looking at the Christmas story around that time. We've had a couple weeks off. We come back to it here now this morning. Uh, between Matthew chapter 2 and chapter 3, some 30 years have passed. And Matthew doesn't give us any details about that time, but we know this. Jesus was living in Nazareth. During those 30 years, he... he he grew from childhood to manhood. He obviously was mentored and trained by his earthly father, Joseph, and he became a carpenter and he was working with his hands in the, in the city of Nazareth. But the time had come after 30 years for his public ministry to begin. And this is where Matthew brings us back into the story of Jesus. And he says this in verse one. In those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew uh, actually tells us nothing about John the Baptist. We know from other places in scripture that he is the son of Elizabeth. That he is the slightly older cousin of Jesus. And... Um, you know, whatever else is the story of John, we're kind of left pretty much with a mystery. Whatever influenced his relationship with God that set him so on fire, we're, we're left with a bit of a, a mystery. Uh, for those of you about to travel to Israel, how many have come to Israel with us before? There's a few, how many, okay, there's like four or five in the room that are going. How many have come before previously? Sweet. When we go to Israel, one of the cool spots that we visit is the cave of Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And there uh, in that community, the Qumran was a, was a community where um, these mainly men were very, they, they had made a choice to live in the wilderness and they were very committed to a life of purity and, and honoring God's word. And uh, 
it, it's actually, actually factual that John was a member of this group at Qumran that was called the Essenes, that he spent a short time there. They have writings that, that prove that John was amongst them. And so there he was amongst this little religious group of mainly men who took very serious their purity. They took very serious their piety. They took very uh, serious uh, their pursuit of God. And they, they built a settlement in the wilderness very close to the Dead Sea. This place where they could live a focused spiritual life seeking God. But John wasn't there very long. We know that John was the son of a priest. But whatever else influenced him spiritually, uh, I don't know what it was, but John was more comfortable in the wilderness than he was as a city dweller. And when John began his preaching, what broke out in the nation of Israel was nothing short of revival. I mean, as we read this, you're going to see that. Nothing short of revival. John was not uh, running a, a sleek media campaign. The growth of his ministry was not because of his Twitter account or his Instagram or his Facebook or his weekly podcast to the nation of Israel. John was, his work in his ministry was really described in one word and it's this, he was preaching. He was preaching. He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and in the minds of many people, I would say this, you know, preaching's like synonym for nap time, Right? It's, uh, you know, maybe thoughts of their mind, you know, people who aren't regulars at church to think, well, I can, you know, there's nothing more boring I could do with my Sunday morning than listen to a preacher. Maybe that's the case. Um, or thoughts of anger and fire and brimstone. But preaching simply means this, as John came to preach. It means to proclaim. To proclaim. Proclaim, acting as a herald, lifting up your voice with an urgent message like one who runs before the king's chariot saying, the king, the king, the king. And John was a preacher. I mean, to the extreme of everything that you imagine in your mind of a, as a preacher. And he proclaimed this message as an ambassador for the king. He preached, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And for the nation of Israel, it had been 400 years without hearing the voice of a prophet. There had been silence from heaven. The heavens were as brass. And yet as John began to preach, it's as though not a day had passed in the history of Israel. Because John picked up right where the prophet Malachi closed off. I mean, if you were to just turn your Bible a, a few pages and read the very end of Malachi, you'd read this, the last two verses. Malachi had prophesied. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And John appeared in the pattern of Elijah and he began to preach and call the nation to repentance. The Greek word for repentance is this awesome word. It's metanoia. And it means this. It means to change your mind. That's all repentance means. Change your mind. It involves turning with contrition from sin to God. It says, God, I change my mind in regards to my sin. And I change my mind in regards to you. And I turn from sin 
To you, it's a change that happens between the ears. And John proclaimed the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heaven obviously is the, the abode, the dwelling place, the residence of, the, of God. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who is in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. And the kingdom of heaven speaks of the rule or the sphere of God's rule. I always say this, where the, wherever the king is, the kingdom is present. Wherever the king is, the kingdom is present. Now I, th- I think about the nation of Israel and in, in Jerusalem, the temple, where the temple was, there was, we know the most holy place. And in the most holy place sat what was called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark itself was the throne of God amongst the nation of Israel. A thousand years before the time of Jesus, in the days of David, when David had ascended, eventually ascended to the throne of Israel, he had ruled in Hebron over the tribe of Judah. And after seven years, all of the nation said, come and be our king. And he came and began to rule all 12, over all 12 of the tribes in the entire nation. And he established his throne in the city of David, Jerusalem. And when David knew that God had established his rule, he consulted his commanders and he consulted his leaders and they decided that they would bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. It had been off in this community called Kirith Jerem. We're going to get to visit there when we go to Israel. It's an awesome spot because you stand there and you go, wow, there's Israel. The ark was trekked from right here to there. You can see the valleys and the spot. And it's just in the distance. It's almost like, you know, looking from Langdale across the house sound towards Horseshoe Bay. So David and his leaders and his commanders decided they would bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem because during the days of Saul's leadership, the people had not consulted the throne of God. And so 1 Chronicles 13 recounts how David and all of Israel went to the community of Kirith-Jerim to bring up the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who the scripture says, sits enthroned above the cherubim. And the ark was loaded onto a new cart and it was pulled along by oxen on the way to Jerusalem. And as they traveled down the road towards Jerusalem, the scripture tells us in in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, that as the oxen pulled the cart somewhere along the road, they came to the threshing floor of Chilon. And at the threshing floor, the oxen stumbled. And as the uh, sought to get properly situated on their feet and the, and the cart began to rock. A man by the name of Uzzah, Uzzah's, Uzzah was the son of the man whose house, his, the ark had been kept in his father's house during this time. So Uzzah was familiar with the ark. And as the cart rocked, The Bible tells us that Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark and he touched it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah 
And God struck him down dead right then and there before David and all the people of Israel. Because he had put out his hand to the ark and he died there before the Lord, the scripture says. Now the lesson behind that whole story, that's for another sermon, okay? We don't got time for that one this morning. But Uzzah reached out and he touched the throne of God. He reached out with his hand to steady that which represented God's rule amongst the people. It might have just been a reaction, you know, I kind of wonder. Was it just like a flinch thing was coming towards him? What the deal was? I don't know. Actually, you know, I, I, I think it was more than just a reaction because I think it exposed a, a hard attitude in Uzzah. That he was a man who wrongly thought that God couldn't take care of himself. He, he acted in a moment with general disregard for the commands of God and he died for it. God struck him dead for reaching out and touching the ark. See, a man cannot reach out and touch God. A, a man cannot reach out and touch the throne of God. And John's message spoke to the heart of a nation. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, rather than you reaching out to touch the throne of God, you need to know something, John proclaimed to the nation. God's kingdom, God's throne, the sphere of his rule, God's presence, the kingdom of heaven is reaching out to touch you. This is not an action that you will initiate. It will be initiated by God. And I, as I think about that, I think, is not every one of our testimony? God found me. God touched me. God pulled me out of the muck and mire. He found me and he pulled me out. And John proclaimed this. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's been brought near. The rule of God is approaching. His throne is coming. His rule is approaching. And it means that there must be preparation. For the kingdom of God and for the touch of God, there must be preparation. And John said the preparation is this. Repent. Repent. Just think for a moment about Uzzah. For him, God's throne meant death. For Uzzah, God's throne and God's rule and God's presence meant death. And so when John proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of God, the nation of Israel was a people that understood they better have their hearts in the right place. They had better have a change of mind in regards to their sin. They had better have a change in mind into the regard, in, in regards to the coming of God's king, his Christ. And the coming of God king, God's kingdom means this. You turn from sin and you turn in faith to the king. You change your mind. Verse 3 tells us this. For he who was spoken of by the prophet, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Have you ever watched that TV show, The Voice? I kind of like that show. I mean, when we used to have cable, I'd watch it once in a while. It, it was this 
program where they were trying to recruit singers, you know. And it would be a show where they would come onto the platform as a contestant and they'd perform some famous song that everyone would know. And they would perform it before the audience, but between the contestant and the audience sat these chairs where judges sat. But the thing about the chairs were they spun around backwards. And so these judges would just listen to the voice and if they liked the voice, bam, they'd hit this switch beside them and their chair would spin around. And they'd try and recruit this singer to come to their team as they battled against one another to find the voice. John was the voice, Isaiah said. He said, this is the voice. Uh, Matthew said, sorry. This is the voice Isaiah prophesied would come. John was a voice in the wilderness. And you think about that. The wilderness as, it's, as it is a lonely place of solitude and, and, and desolate and, and uninhabited. Who hears that voice? That's what I think. To who was he preaching? In the wilderness of Judea. The stones? The dirt? Wasn't he shouting to no one? You know, you think about John. John was not found in temple courts. John was not found preaching in the synagogue. John was not found in the institute of religious schooling. John was in the wilderness. And yet as he proclaimed the kingdom of God, the crowds began to flock to him. As he proclaimed the coming of God's king, the crowds began to come in droves. And they, they, they recognized this in, his, in their own hearts. If the king is coming, we have to prepare. We have to make straight the path. And I would say this about John, and I'm going to try and drive this home this morning. Hard. I want you to hear it. John's message was a message of judgment. John was an Old Testament prophet. Israel sinned and they were a nation that needed to repent. Check it out in verse 4. It says this. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Yummy. Uh, the name John means Jehovah is a gracious giver. What an awesome name. Jehovah is a gracious giver or Jehovah has graced. Matthew describes for us his garments, his raiment, what he clothed himself in. And, and I mean, John's a unique wild man here. I don't know what else to say. Camel's hair, not exactly trendsetting. Uh, a camel is a, a beast of burden that goes a long time traveling in the wilderness without consuming water. You know, we read about Jesus elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew that at the transfiguration, and just to contrast, his raiment shone like lightning so that no eye could almost shine brighter than anything could be bleached or washed white in the world. We read of John here that his, his belt was leather, the, the hide of Beast, but you read in Revelation about Jesus who wears a golden sash around his waist. John's food, is, his nourishment was uh, locust, which apparently goes good with onions and fried with butter. Uh, <laughs> you can laugh. You know, I actually was thinking about that as a joke and then I'm reading in my studies and I come across this and it says, 
that some arid people, you know, pop the heads and the legs and the wings off them and they stew them with butter and eat them. And Israelites, the scripture, it was lawful. Locusts could be eaten, but I think of locusts as a sign of God's judgment. And, and, and here's John clothed in the clothing of a beast of burden that goes long times without water. He's feeding on locusts, the sign of God's judgment, and eating wild honey. Whatever uncultivated sweetness he could scrounge up as he wandered in the desert. I mean, John was clearly a, a wild man, but I think in him we see a picture of the nation of Israel itself at that time. Spiritually thirsty, experiencing God's judgment, living off whatever uncultivated sweetness they could scrounge up, and their hope in God, their hope that God would do something new drove them to respond to John's preaching. And so we read in verse five, it says this, then Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Ceremonial washing was a common practice in the experience of, uh, of Israel. In fact, amongst the Essenes, that group that John had at Qumran that John had once been a part of, uh, they were uh, writing out copies of the scriptures we know that, they preserved them in the caves. And one of their practices was this, is that every time they came to the name of God as they were writing, they would stop and they would go and take a ceremonial bath. They would have a baptism and then they would come back for cleansing, for remission of sin. And then they would write the name of God. And so ceremonial washing was a common practice in the, the experience of Israel, but John's baptism was... Something entirely new for the nation. It was a baptism of repentance that was looking and pointing forward and looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. A baptism of repentance. We no longer practice John's baptism. We, I don't know what we call our baptism. I don't know, what do we call it? Maybe someone can inform me after the service. I don't know. Christian baptism that we practice? Yeah, let's call it that. Christian baptism is also a baptism of repentance, but it's different from John's baptism in this sense, is that John's baptism was preparatory in, in the sense that it looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. The baptism that we practice is different in this sense that we follow Jesus Christ in faith. We say, I surrender to you, Jesus. I invite you to come and be the Lord of my life, and then we go get baptized. We baptize in his name signifying the remission and the washing away of sins and we identify ourselves with Jesus' death and resurrection in our baptism. And so I would say this about baptism. Baptism is a clear command of the scripture. It, it is Jesus' teaching that we are to go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and I would really encourage you if you have not been baptized, what are you waiting for? That's my question. You should just plug that one in the back of your mind this morning and hang on to it. What are you waiting for? You should come and talk to me today. The people, the people in John's days were baptized because it signified that there was a change in their lives. They were leaving their old lives and they were turning 
to new lives. And I really believe that though we see baptism, it, it, baptism is symbolic, um, yet at the same time, there seems to be something that those that we experience for following Jesus Christ into the waters of baptism. It's different for different people. You know, maybe there's some victory over some issue of sin. Maybe there's a sense of personal revival afterwards. Maybe there's a sense of God cleansing your conscience as you confess publicly, I'm gonna follow Jesus, or maybe even an experience of the Spirit's empowering, or like the story of Jesus, a descending of God's presence on your life in a new way. And in baptism, the old man, the old me is buried in the waters and we are raised to new life in Christ. And so baptism is this, I would say. It's part of burying the old man. It's part of burying the old life as we make the decision to follow Jesus Christ. And so if you haven't been baptized, I ask you, you know, I would ask you this. Why are you clinging to your camel's clothing and locust? Bury the man of the flesh. Bury him. Put him to death. Make a public confession that you have put your faith in Christ Jesus and that you have died with him and you have been raised to life with him who saved you. And in Israel, at the preaching of John, in the wilderness of Judea, it was revival. It was revival. People were publicly acknowledging their sin. They were publicly making verbal confession of their transgressions against God. They were turning from it. They were going into the waters and coming out of the waters to signify, I am leaving that man behind to prepare for the coming of the king. Openly confessing their sin. And it's been said this about sin. Sin is simply missing the mark. Like an archer taking target at the bullseye, but rather than hitting the center of the target, he takes aim and he releases his hand and the arrow shoots through the sky and rather than hitting the bullseye or the target, the arrow drops short and falls into the ground. And sin is missing the target of God's law and plan and purpose for us. Verse 7 says this, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Aren't you glad I didn't welcome you to church like that this morning? (laughs) You snakes. Brood of vipers. I actually think this, brood's a really polite translation of what John was speaking. John's welcoming statement to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's saying this, you're born of snakes. You are the offspring of those who slither on their belly, man. You are as close to the devil as it gets. You're sons of the devil. I mean, that's what John was saying to these Pharisees and Sadducees. And he called them vipers, which is a generic term for a poisonous snake. He said, you're poison. Your bite is poison. You're 
cunning and malignant and wicked men as you come here who warned you to flee the wrath. See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the religious elite leaders in the nation of Israel. But John saw through their religiosity. John saw through the, the veil and he saw the truth of what was in the heart of these men. They were a group of self-righteous quibblers, hair splitters, men who reduced the things of God down to, and matters of faith down to petty rules. Too comfortable to be enthusiastic about their relationship with God. Too enlightened to really believe. And their faith was cold and they were morally corrupt men. Like white, like a whitewashed tomb, Jesus called them. Whitewashed tombs. They, they had all the appearance, appearance of purity, but in them was death. They had all the outward trappings of religion without a real relationship with God. And I think that as we consider this passage this morning, I, I have to say to us, make sure you hear the words of this prophet, John. What was John proclaiming? What John was proclaiming was this, because of the coming of the Messiah, the, the coming of the Messiah was the hope of Israel, but we all understand that. We understand that the nation of Israel hoped in the coming of their Christ, the Messiah. But what John was proclaiming about the Messiah, the great hope of this Messiah was not hope, it was terror. This is a message of terror. The throne is coming. If you reach out and touch it, you're dead. You've got to get your heart right as it comes to touch you. You vipers who warned you to flee the wrath to come. Get your heart right. See, wrath, wrath, my friends, is inseparable with the coming of the king. The righteous reign of Jesus means that unrighteousness has to be punished. And John said to the Pharisees, you bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Oh, it's not a simple matter. Let's just get dunked in the Jordan River and everything's all good. The old is gone and the new has come. It's a way of living. If your repentance is sincere, sincere then your life must produce fruit, John said as he taught the word of God. You know, I think of the words of Jesus in John 15 who said, Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And John proclaimed, bear fruit in keeping with, present, with repentance. And in verse nine, it records that he says this, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. See, John knew as he taught the word of God to the crowd, as he proclaimed the coming kingdom, as he called them to repentance, as he called them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, 
John knew that every person in that crowd before him believed that his birth, that his birthright as a son of Israel, as an Israelite, as a Jew, meant that he was totally secure when the Messiah came. The Pharisees, in fact, used this very justification with Jesus. They said, we're sons of Abraham. Who are you to talk to us like that? And Jesus said to them, if you were sons of Abraham, you'd believe me. But you do not believe my word because you are sons of your father. They said, what? We're not illegitimate children. What is this you say of us? We are children of Abraham. And Jesus said to them, You are children of your father, the devil. And your will is to do what your father desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. The Pharisees in their hearts were looking for a way to silence Jesus and he knew it. They were were plotting for his death. And Jesus' words pinned them to the mat and exposed what was in their hearts. You're relying on the fact that you're sons of Abraham and you don't even believe in me. You know, when I think of the Pharisees, I honestly have to say this, that that if you never have questions in regards to your faith, if you never wrestle Internally, you may have slid down the dangerous slope into the place of presumption in your relationship with Jesus Christ. See, if you rely on anything, if you rely on anything besides simplicity of faith in Jesus Christ, you have entered into the dangerous territory of the Pharisee. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. John said, even now, verse 10, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You know, I'm sure probably if you've lived on the Sunshine Coast over the years, you've gone for a, a walk through the woods and at some point in time, maybe, you know, you've wandered into a stand of trees that's been marked to be cut down. You ever done that? You walk in there and there's the tape, you know, the surveyor's tape and the paint markings and the trees are marked. They're they're fatal marks for those trees. They're they're marks that are going to direct the falling crew. It's going to say, cut here, take this one down, save this one. We'll go this far. We won't, we'll stop here. And the marks are there and the falling crew is going to come through, cut the trees down. And, um, you know, I would say this, contrary to the belief of some, God believes in logging. And I, I, I will tell you, I'll tell you what. The eye of the woodsman is looking over the forest of mankind. And the righteous, the unrighteous ones will be marked, John says. The unrighteous will be marked and they will fall and they will be carried away to be burnt. Produce food in keeping with repentance. It's no wonder the crowds flock to repent. Don't you think that as you 
Think on these things that John is saying. I mean, it's no wonder that they flock to John into the waters of baptism to say, I'm leaving the old life behind to follow this king that's coming. They sense the reality and weight of John's preaching. The kingdom was approaching and there was a a necessary uh, heart preparation that was an absolute necessity for personal safety. It had to happen or you'd be cut down. And then John said this in verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor. And gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, John had no illusions of who he was in comparison to the Messiah, God's Christ. He said, in other places, other gospels say, he said, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. It was a message he taught all the time. Matthew records, he said, I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. You know, Jesus actually said this of John in in Matthew chapter 11, that among those born of woman, none greater has arisen than John. And, And Jesus said that because of the message that John preached. He was the announcer of the kingdom. And and like I said, people flocked to him. They they flocked to repent. The heart of a nation was revived at his preaching. He was greatest because he announced the coming of the kingdom and he spoke with accuracy and he spoke with authority and he said this about the coming Messiah. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. See, John baptized with water, but he taught here of two other baptisms. The baptism of the Spirit and the baptism of fire. And it was the king who would perform both of these baptisms. We know that the baptism of the spirit came at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And the baptism with the Holy Spirit is a a baptism that Jesus does for us. Where we're, we're filled and we're empowered and we're washed in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he engulfs our life and he empowers us to make Christ known. And I, and I would tell you this, if you, if you do not feel like you have experienced a baptism by the Holy Spirit, in, with the Holy Spirit by Jesus Christ, you should ask the Lord, baptize me with the Holy Spirit. Seek him for it. The baptism of the Spirit. But John also spoke of the baptism of fire, which is something entirely different. The baptism of fire refers to future judgment. When the chaff is burnt, when the trees that have had the axe laid to them are consumed, the unquenchable fire. We're going to come back to the baptism of fire in a few minutes, but look again with me to verse 12. It says this. Of the Messiah, John proclaimed, his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn. 
but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. When wheat was harvested in the field and cut down and put into sheaves, it was brought to the threshing floor. And there it would be laid out. When we go to Israel, we're going to see threshing floors. They're really cool. It's a neat thing to see. The, the wheat would be laid out on the threshing floor and the worker would take an instrument called a flail and he would beat the plants. He'd beat the wheat. And then when he had performed that task, he would take the winnowing fork and he would, like a pitchfork, and he would take the wheat and he would toss it up into the air. And because the kernels of wheat were heavier than the chaff, they would drop to the ground and the wind as it was blowing would catch the chaff and whew, blow it off. And so the worker would be able to separate the wheat from the chaff, the, the kernel from the waste. And because there was this need to do so, threshing floors were often on high places, tops of hills, tops of mountains, because you needed a spot where the wind was blowing. My favorite threshing floor, we're going to visit it, is on the Temple Mount. It's a threshing floor uh, where David paid, I forget, Arnua, amount of money. He said, I, I won't offer to God a sacrifice that costs me nothing. And the temple was built over the threshing floor of Arnua. You can stand on it right today on the Temple Mount. And so these threshing floors were placed in high places. And John said this, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Messiah, God's king, is going to separate chaff and wheat. Remember Uzzah? Who reached out and touched the throne as it traveled on the ark. When David was bringing the ark to Jerusalem... Uzzah reached out and he touched the ark and God struck him dead. And the interesting thing about that story is that it tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 where it happened. At the threshing floor of Chilon. See, Uzzah was chaff. Uzzah was a man whose life was chaff. And when we think of the Messiah, we think of Jesus. John said, the winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor and he will gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire, a baptism of fire, consumed. And Uzzah was chaff. There is a baptism of fire. You know, I think of the words of Spurgeon. How do you defend a lion? You let him out of the cage. You open the door and you let him out and he will defend himself. And John proclaimed, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the way was prepared. The, the path was straight. A spirit of repentance came upon the hearts of the people and the nation of Israel. But what happened next? What happened next? Not even John expected. Pick it up in verse 13 with me. Then Jesus came. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. 
to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In the midst of this national revival that was happening in, in the Jordan Valley, along the river there, as John was baptizing people, Jesus made his way from Nazareth in the Galilee towards the Jordan, where John was baptizing the multitudes. You know, I, I, in my mind's eye, I picture multitudes coming and Jesus in the midst of them looking like everyone else, no different, just a face in a crowd. Scripture says there was nothing about him on the outside to make him, it wasn't a halo around his head as he walked amongst the crowd. He was a face in the crowd. But John recognized him. Though the crowd there had not yet recognized him, John recognized him. And John, we understand really the words of John when he said this, I, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I think about Jesus and baptism and the picture of baptism and all that it means. The remission and the washing of sins and the act of repentance and asking God to forgive and leaving the old life behind for the new. And then I think of Jesus. There was no sin in Jesus. He was not baptized as a repentant sinner. Jesus did not need to be washed in the waters of baptism. No, Jesus was identifying himself with sinners, though he was not a sinner. See, baptism is a symbol of death. And this was a foreshadow of his death. There was no sin in him. Jesus would actually die for sinful man. He would give his life. There was no sin in him, but the sin of mankind would be placed on him. My sin was not in him. My sin was placed on him. And Jesus entered the waters of baptism to identify himself with me and to identify himself with you. And I think this. If he would do such a thing for me, if he would enter the water of baptism to identify himself with me as a sinner, how could I not enter the water of baptism to identify himself, myself with him, my Savior? He is our Savior. He is our righteousness. How could we not follow him into the waters of baptism? 
How could we not follow him into the waters of baptism and be identified with the one who, who died for us and who gave his life for our sin? See, Jesus entered the water for me and so I enter the water for him. Do you understand? And John was right when he said, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But what John didn't see at that point was that Jesus was not baptized for himself. He was baptized for you. Jesus was identifying himself with you. And then the most amazing thing happened. When Jesus was baptized and came up out of the water, immediately he came up out of the water, and behold, it says the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. It reminds me of the story of Noah and the ark and the flood and the, the receding waters. After floating on the water of God's judgment that had wiped out mankind save one family. Floating on the waters of God's judgment upon the face of the earth after 40 days. The scripture tells us that Noah opened a window and he sent forth a raven from the ark. And out it went and the scripture says that it, it flew to and fro over the face of the waters but it could not find a place to land and it did not come back to an ark and it just stayed in the air until the waters receded. And so because the raven did not come back, Noah sent forth a dove. He sent forth a dove to see if the waters had subsided and the scripture says that the dove went out and she found no place to land and so at evening she came back and Noah put out his hand and took the dove back into the ark. And he waited seven days and then once more he sent out the dove and in evening the scripture says the dove came back this time in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive branch. Jesus is our ark. The olive branch is a symbol of hope and peace and the dove is a symbol of the kingdom of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit. God didn't send in the eagle of Rome, a bird of prey that eats other birds. Didn't save a ra send a raven that feasts on trash. He sent a dove that was a symbol of peace carrying an olive branch. And Jesus is our ark and the dove is the symbol of God's kingdom and a, the symbol of the presence of the Holy Spirit. John proclaimed that the Messiah would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But here's the thing about John. John was an Old Testament prophet. Don't make that mistake. Just because he's recorded in the New Testament, he was actually an Old Testament prophet still at this point. And John could not see what you and I see with the hindsight of history and the full canon of Scripture. 
John proclaimed that the Messiah would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I told you something earlier that Jesus said about John. Jesus said this, among those born of women, there has arisen none greater than John. But I only told you half of what Jesus said because Jesus went on and he said this, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. See, John was not able to separate in his mind the teaching and the understanding and the doctrine of the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. When he spoke of the baptism of the spirit and the baptism of fire, he saw them as one and the same and he didn't recognize that he was proclaiming two different comings. John proclaimed the need of repentance to escape wrath. He said it's fire. It's fire. You're going to die. You have to repent. The throne of God is coming. He's got his, his winnowing fork in his hand. The threshing floor. This is death. Get your heart right. Repent. And I think of the words of Spurgeon who was asked, how do you defend the Bible? He answered, how do you defend a lion? You open the door and you let it out. A lion. And my friends, the father opened the door. God opened the door. God opened the door, but the surprise was that rather than a lion, out came a lamb. A lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the voice of the Father spoke from heaven. He opened heaven. He sent the presence of the Spirit and he said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The voice of God had not been heard since it shook Mount Sinai at the coming of the law. But now the voice of God spoke at the coming of the Lamb. And the Lamb the lamb identified himself with sinners in the waters of baptism and the father spoke from heaven and he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I'll tell you this about Jesus. He's a lion and a lamb. And at his first coming, he was a lamb. But he's coming again. And he will yet come as a lion. The door will once again open. And there will be a threshing floor. And as there was a baptism of the spirit, there will be a baptism of fire. Uh, but for now, but for now, he is and will forever be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is important that we grasp this because what it tells us is this, my friends, that today is the day of grace. Today is the year of God's favor. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Repent. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. 
Come to the Lamb of God who will take away your sins. Come to the Lamb of God who, who shed his blood for the sin of mankind and he will forgive and he will heal your sin. But know this in the back of your mind. He's coming again as the lion and there will be a baptism of fire. Let's pray this morning. Would you guys stand with me?